Hello, and welcome to The Word on the Hill with the Lanky Guys. My name is Bud. My name is Bud. I wish I knew the reference. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a Primus song. Oh, okay. I don't know why. I, I, I it was so straight that I was like, I gotta. It I was gotta, too straight. I was like, I gotta switch it up. I get sense it's something four, was coming. It's the fourth Sunday of Advent. I well, who are you actually, though? My name is Father Peter Mossett. Oh, hey, Father Peter. I'm Scott Powell. Nice to meet you. Night, likewise. Um, yeah, dude. The um, yeah, delight and wonder come partially from surprise. What? <laughs> <laughs> Is that in relation to you having surprised me with the clean opening of the podcast? And then just and, and then, then break and, twist, and then yes. and then going into my name is Mud. So what does it bring me? Joy and wonder, heart heartfelt butterflies and rainbow. What did what did you say? Yeah, yeah. Joy and wonder, delight and delight and delight and wonder. Delight and wonder. Oh, I'm I'm bringing on parts man. of it. That's what I feel. My friend, uh, I was hanging out with, that sent me a TED talk about from OK Go. Oh, they the guys who did the the um. The treadmills, the treadmills, treadmills. yeah, and they were just talking about how like you can plan stuff, Mm. but really you should like go and encounter the thing that's there, and then cool things happen. So they were talking about yeah, like how do you have fun play boxes, like like sandboxes, places to go play, and then go and play in them, and then do interesting things. So it was actually really, it was actually a pretty good talk, actually, actually talking, actually. Hawking, hawking, hawking tactually. Hawking tactually. So, yeah, I have no idea why. So then I figured I'd surprises. throw in a surprise. You're surprising. No, you're, this yeah, is they, consistent. They were talking about that. Well, this uh, week's readings are full of surprises. Wow. They are, actually. They're Sup- all messages that are su- a bit of a surprise. I think that's fair to say. Supplies. That's right. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. Wow, that's actually surprising. We're in the fourth Sunday of Advent. <laughs> fourth Sunday of Advent. You yes. surprised me. I know I did. Yeah, so uh, we're in the fourth Sunday of Advent. Um, uh, the first reading is from Second Samuel. Okay, okay. Uh, can I tell you? <laughs> yes. Okay, I love giving people knives for a gift. Didn't see that coming. Okay, surprise Cause, again. Because there's something wonderful about a sharp knife. Yeah, that's fair. And, and once you get obsessed with sharpening, it's all over. Because yeah. you're going to yeah. start sharpening everything. And it's just... It's just sharpening mayhem. Just cut it out. Yeah. Okay. I, I, have fe- no, I have nothing. I feel like somebody took a knife and okay. cut up... thank you. Second Samuel. Oh, thank you. Because I was like, come on, just it's give us the whole story. Man. Just like give us the three extra lines and give us something whole. I was like, they those it's lines did annoying. not get to be... No, they really didn't. There was no good... Except to to for the sake of brevity. Which I assume was the reasoning behind this. One sentence is Efficiency. not. Yeah, it, it doesn't. It doesn't do a whole lot. Like, but when you cut it up this much, then you cut out almost a whole paragraph. Right. All right. Uh, our first read. You 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 were doing that. You were doing that. Yep. You do that. Second Samuel, um, uh, verse. Second Samuel, chapter seven, verse one to five, eight B to twelve, fourteen A, sixteen. It's a lot. A lot of choppy. It, it dices. It slices. It's uh, ISIL. 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 ISIL International Committee on the Committee on the English in the Liturgy. ISIL. <laughs> Our responsorial psalm is Psalm eighty-nine, verses two to three, four to five, twenty-seven, and twenty-nine, with the response coming from verse two. Yep. Second reading is Romans mm. chapter sixteen, twenty-five, twenty-six, and twenty-seven. The very end of Romans. And our gospel, of course, is coming from Luke. Chapter 21, verses 26 through 38. You the, mean Luke chapter 1. What did I say? 21. I did? Yep. Luke 1, 26 through 38. 
I was I was already ready to start talking about it. Yeah, you were really you got amped up. It was a little kind bit. of scary, actually. Really, is it scary? Yeah. Okay. This is the enunciation. Okay, okay. So set for Second Samuel. Second Samuel. Um, you know, okay. The key to understanding this reading for me, by the way, mm-hmm. is understanding the context <laughs> that it we find it in. Yes, that's right. Why are you laughing? <laughs> Because, funny. Well, no, I was laughing at myself because um, if we've ever not said that in the podcast, mm, we ought to. The, like, no, no, we've literally we said that for nine years. Well, you know, the key to understanding Samuel is <laughs> understanding the context that he's in. That's yeah, my NPR voice. Yeah, NPR. So I, I find it funny. So, so there's this just comes right after the story of um, of Samuel uh, wanting to bring the. Ark of the Covenant to his hometown, but then he takes a divergence and takes it into the house of Obeded Hill Country, Obeded Edom, right? Uh, Obededum is how I've always pronounced it, but I'm not sure how to pronounce it, to be honest. Obededum. Obededum. Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan so Kenobi. so uh, you, that's the way you can remember it, is the, is the Ark of the Covenant goes to Obi-Wan Kenobi's Hill that's Country house terribly for three months. That's helpful, rather. Yeah. This yeah, is... that just happened. And now the Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem by this point. But he has to dance in his underwear first. <laughs> well, that already happened. That's that's, that's in the chapter con- 6. <laughs> that's the context. It's we're, not the con- we're in chapter 7, yes. verse 1. Yes. The context is yes. technically speaking is that is chapter a six, contextual bro. detail to this story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's fair. Um, the other thing of context, uh, yeah, another aspect of the, well, um, the context, you give give it to me. Well, the other, the other thing I want to say prior to context is that this is the moment of what is called the Davidic covenant. This is the swearing of the Davidic covenant. This is the moment that God makes a covenant with David, or maybe one could say renews his covenant with his people through David. So if you've, uh, um, the, the schema that's sometimes used in teaching salvation history, you know, of the multiple covenants that God makes, or or rather, I, I think it's more proper to say renewals of the covenant with humanity that God makes throughout salvation history with Adam and Eve, with Noah, with Moses, um, no, with, God, with Adam and Eve, with, uh, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with King David, of course, and then the, the new covenant through Jesus, ultimately. This is the moment that he swears himself in uh, through, he swears himself to David and to his people that he will be their God for all of eternity, which is a, a renewal of vows in a certain sense that he already made. The context for that, like you said, actually has everything to do with the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark of the Covenant had been uh, mobile. It's it still more or less is mobile, but it had been sort of dwelling in different places. And of course, the ark is where it's believed the presence of God literally dwells, the tabernacle where God himself, uh, not in the form of bread and wine as we have now in well, the New in, Covenant, in but three in parts. the cloud. Well, he, the presence of God in himself is only in the cloud, the Shekinah. And then there are the things that accompany him. That, if, you, if I'm reading you right. So if I sign in with my Apple ID, God is present there? Oh my gosh. <laughs> is this what is was that the joke? I thought you were going somewhere else. No, no. Oh, where I, are you I, going? I just came up with that real <laughs> quick. Pretty good. I, well, I just the, the the tripartite of the word of God written by the finger of God, the uh, priestly rod of Aaron, and yeah. the jar of manna. Yeah, those things I believe accompanied the presence of God. It's it's. I was going to say it's like the vigil candle, which is not true whatsoever. But they 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 are not the presence of God, but they sign they're they're sacramentals, really, for lack of a better way to to say it. Um, they're sacramentals that are there to remind us of the presence mm. of God that's actually there. Because, of course, when the presence of God leaves the temple, those things actually remain. They're still there, but the presence of God is not with them anymore. 
Um, but regardless, the 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 ta- the presence of God in the tabernacle comes and settles in Jerusalem, and this is. The reason that this is such a significant moment, and this is when God chooses to speak this covenant to David, is that um, this is the first time in the story of David where things and David himself are at peace. The first time that he's not at war with someone or fighting someone or trying to escape someone or on the run from someone. It's the first moment of shalom you actually get in the story of David, which is why David then finally has a second to think, okay, I'm not at war right now. We're in shalom. When the Lord had given him rest, it said, from his enemies on every side, he thinks to himself, man, I'm in this really nice palace sitting here made of cedars in Jerusalem, and the presence of God in the tabernacle is still sitting in a tent out there. Right. I should build him a house. And the, the play, this whole passage, is a play on three different uses of the word house. Beth. Uh, B-E-T-H is the Hebrew word for house. Beth. Yep. And so... David says, you know, I have this really nice house that I live in. God is sitting out there in a tent. I should build him a house. And so he tells Nathan, who's kind of the, you know, the in-house prophet, he's like, this is what I want to do. And Nathan's like, that's a great idea. He issues the building permit and, and stuff. And, you know, they kind of get things moving. <laughs> that's a Thomas Smith joke. That's funny. And then, and I think it's cut out from here, I believe, but basically Nathan has a dream after hearing David's plans, and God speaks to Nathan and says, I actually want you to go and, and revoke the building permit. That's the setup for that joke. Uh, but basically, I want you to tell him no. And the play that you get as God speaks the Davidic covenant is, you want to build me a house, which is great. That's all fine and good. But I don't want you to build me a house. Rather, I want to build you a house. Now, David, of course, lives in a house, and it's his living in a house that made him want to build a building for God. He's like, I'll build you a house. God says, no, you're not going to build me a house. Rather, I will make you into a household in a certain sense, Mm. a family. But he uses the word house. So you want to build me a building, but I don't want to be built a building right now. That'll happen through your son. Your son will actually do that for me. I want to build you into a house. And this is where God really um, sets the groundwork for everything that Jesus is going to do, saying, I want to make you into the, well, I'll, I'll read it. It says, I was I who took you from the pasture and from the care of the flock to be a commander of my people. I've been with you wherever you went. I destroyed all your enemies before you. I made you famous like the great ones of the earth. And I fix a place for my people Israel. I'll plant them and they may dwell in their place without any disturbance. Neither shall the wicked continue to afflict them as they did of old. Since the time that you first, I first appointed judges over my people, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also reveals to you that he will establish a house for you. Or rather, in some translations, he will establish you into a house. And when the time comes, I like for, that more. Isn't it, it that actually? I think it's a better translation. It's more exact, right? Because it's like because we're so literal as as people. Like it's yeah. like you know, unless you watch Game of Thrones and then like House, Tar- House Tarnakian or whatever. I never watched that. I never show. watched it. it. It was too explicit to yeah. for for human consumption, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> human consumption, yeah. But like, yeah, reasonable. but like the, you know, like House of Steiner. If you played BattleTech, you know, like <laughs> like but all three of you did. Yeah, all three of us who played the role-playing game Battletech, man, I was always like House of Steiner, man. Like, like where it's like the House of David, we right. can say yeah. it that way, but we don't mean the literal, like, you know, tar paper roof. It's the family name. 
Yes. Right? It's the dynasty. That's right. what this is getting at. Yes, I like that. I'm just yeah. thinking more. So I'll build you into a house. So I'll build you into a house, which I do think is better. And when the time comes for you to rest with your ancestors, which isn't that more pleasant than kick the bucket or something, <laughs> it's time for you to go. Yeah. To rest with your ancestors. I will raise up an heir after you, sprung from your loins, and I will make his kingdom firm. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne shall stand firm forever. The reason, uh, well, there's lots of things to say about this, but one of the things I think is most beautiful about this is that this is David, a holy man, a righteous man, trying to be a faithful man, who has what is a true and good and right idea to do something great for God. And God says, no, I don't want you to do that great thing for me. I rather want to do something in turn for you. And I just, it's, it's just an important reflection, especially for those of us who work in the church, in ministry, in these capacities. We always want to do stuff, which is good. There are good and noble and valid things to be done. But sometimes I think we're, we're hesitant or we're less willing to look for the ways in which God wants to build things of us in our lives and our families. In min- I mean, this is why, you know, we always talk about our, we have the things that we do in our ministry. And this is why this is a particularly hard moment in time. You know, our ministry is incarnational. The Christian message, the all of Christendom is an incarnational reality where we are meant to be build up, built up as God's house and God's temple to reflect his kingship and his holiness to the rest of the world through our very selves, not merely through the things that we do or the classes that we teach or the podcasts that we produce, but through our very selves, we're supposed to be living witnesses, which, you know, this is a time when it's particularly hard to do that because of the circumstances. But all the more reason that we say, okay, I have these ideas, but God, how do you actually want me to be a living witness in this moment? Right. Because that's what he's saying to David. Now, David's son, Solomon, will build a temple. He'll actually do. And there's a Jewish tradition. I don't know if you've heard of this or we've talked about this, that the only reason that Solomon is able to build the temple, according to the ancient rabbis, was because he was the only one who didn't have blood on his hands. David, holy as he as as he was had a lot of blood on his hands from killing and war and everything else. Right. And it's only Solomon that actually lived in the shalom of um, that state of rest that God promised. And so his hands and his hands alone were fit for building the temple. It's an interesting tradition that to take it for whatever you will. Yeah, that's, that's you know, usually when I do woodworking, I end up with blood on my hands, but well, not. That's because, this but it's not somebody else's. So <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. Well, the only, no, the only blood on my hands is the Lord's. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, you should purify. That, yeah, that's why I have purificators. Yeah, that's good. I don't even know if I can joke about that. Or not. <laughs> yeah, it's not a joke. Yeah, yeah, joke. Yeah, joke. yeah. This is the problem in my life is that I say <laughs> things that are really actually serious in a way that you really shouldn't laugh at them. Yeah. And then you're like, but your tone. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, ah, that's no, not I don't okay. know what to do with that. Yeah. Um, which is, unless there is more to be said, a good segue into Psalm eighty nine. What do you think? Um, what do you, what are you seeing in that first reading? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, really the, when we talk about air, I mean, the, there's always proximate and remote fulfillment. Yeah. 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 Well, so, yes. so, <laughs> so we, we can see Solomon in his proximate fulfillment. In a proximate fulfillment. Exactly right. But, but what he's pointing to, and we, we can see this with our <clears throat> Christian lens that in the reality is, is that there's a remote fulfillment in Christ and that, that the only possible way to, to speak about what this is supposed to be doing 
is through Christ. And and like I just because you read you read the line, I'm gonna be a father to him mm-hmm. and he will be a son to me. Okay. Right. You're like, oh, we're having a beautiful Trinitarian revelation. Oh. That's true. He's going to be a son to me. Well, no, you're absolutely right. And do you know it's from this line? So it's funny. This line. Oh, there's a lot to say. Um, I don't want to get ahead of myself. This part of the reason we get the readings that we do this week. Yes. Number one, they fit. But number two, um, Psalm 80. So uh, first Samuel, second Samuel seven, Psalm 89 and Luke chapter one, all uh, explicitly quote the same thing. They're all the same line, and so that's there's a there's a literal like you know literary mm. reason that we have all these readings together, but it's because of this line. So this is the first time that all of the from here on out, let's say, all of the kings in the nation of Israel will be called the son of God. It's a title that the king held because of this passage. And when God said to David, your son is going to be like a son to me and I will be his father. And so for thousands of years, every king in the nation of Israel was called a son of God, which, I mean, talk about providence. This is God's way for thousands of years of slowly preparing the hearts of his people for that to become a literal reality when his son becomes the king and the, the heir of David. Right. Which and, is kind of cool. And then the next line can throw you off. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with the rods as mortals use with blows inflicted by human beings. Other translations. Where um, are you? Um, I'm in um, 14, verse 14. I will be his father and he will be my son. And when yeah. he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. Different translation. It's one. No, it's just one of the lines that conveniently was lifted out of the reading from Acts. <laughs> no, really? Yeah. Because when oh, I totally. because when I look at this, um, I thought, oh, because it's fourteen a. Yeah, yeah. Dang. Because I you can see on a certain logical level why the church might lift that out because it needs some unpacking. Right. So, but, but it's but then, important. But it's a theologically <clears throat> critical moment because <clears throat> to help us to see that. Um, that uh, the Arian the Arian heresy is mm, wrong. Yeah. Yes, yes, and and that actually he is both God and man because he takes on our iniquity, yes. and then his passion is predicted both within his king. So uh, yeah. it's it's so it's a Trinitarian kingdom passion revelation. So we already a Trinitarian kingdom passion revelation. Absolutely right. And so so you so you're <clears throat> you're listening to this and you're going like. Oh wow! Like like it just is. It's just one of those absolutely satisfying, um, spiritually and intellectual moments of of like what God is gonna do. So imagine the, how unsatisfying it might have been for David to have this grandiose plan. Say this is what I want to do, and it's gonna bring all these things. And for God to say, no, you're not gonna do that. And I'm gonna actually do all of these things, but you're not gonna see any of them. That would have been difficult, I think. You know what's interesting too is I think about when I'm peaceful, I'm like, ooh, I can do another project. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what's happening. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. He he's like, relax, and he's like, ooh, I mean, it's not wrong. It's not wrong, but the Lord's like, bro, you actually just have to enjoy the peace that I give you. Don't don't yeah. start up something else. Get like, I give you shalom for a reason. One part of what's happening here, which is a good thing, is that that moment of rest 
the reason we oftentimes will think of projects we ought to do is because it's only in the moments of rest that we can actually open our eyes and take notice of the things that need to be done. Right. That you might not notice when you're moving at full speed and you know doing all the things. And so right. David notices, oh, well, shoot, <laughs> God's out there and I'm in a big house. I should do something about that. Well, I should start a project. Right. Because he has the eyes to see what needs to happen. And again, yes. God says, mm, just chill. Burp. Enjoy the rest. Um, which brings Ooh. us to Psalm 89. Yep. Which is one of the, Psalm Psalm 2 and Psalm 89 um, are actually parallels of each other. They're both coronation psalms. So they're psalms that were meant to be, uh, so Psalm 2, it's believed, was the prayer that David would have prayed over Solomon when Solomon became anointed as king. And that's the prayer that uh, God actually quotes at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, all these things. Um, All of those themes are then paralleled in Psalm 89, which traditionally is believed to be the psalm that Solomon then prayed over his son at his coronation, which then picks up all of the themes of the Davidic covenant that would have been, of course, prayed over Solomon. He then prays over his son. Um, but what's significant, so it's beautiful, and it picks up these themes of, of God as my father, and he is going to establish our kingdom from all posterity, enforce your throne for all, or establish your throne for all generations. He will say, you are my father, God, my rock, and my salvation, all those, all those themes. But the one thing I want to point out that I think is most interesting about Psalm 89, and I, I really love Psalm 89 for one specific reason, um, there are two words that are used continuously throughout the psalm, which are actually, they're not unique to the Bible, but they're used in a unique way here. And it's the words, we translate them um, uh, faithfulness. Oh, where did I have them written down? Uh, well, the Hebrew, I'll say the Hebrew words because they're a little bit messy in the English. But the words are chesed and emet. Chesed and emet. And we've talked about chesed, which is shorthand for God's steadfast love. And chesed means his faithfulness. So God is steadfast in his love with us, is constant, but he's also faithful. He is emet. And I actually went through in my Bible, and I did this for a class I taught once, and I, I highlighted in different colors each of the times that those words show up. And you can see it's, it's actually quite a few times wow, throughout yeah. this psalm. I'm showing yeah, Father absolutely. Peter my highlighted Bible. And the reason that this is important, the first time, and, and this is the only thing I, I have to say about this, which I find uh significant with what you said about the first reading in a particular way about the passion. The first time you see this word grouping of hesed and emet is actually in the book of Exodus. And it's in Exodus chapter 34, verses six through seven. And the context for that is at right after Israel has fallen to the famous apostasy of the golden calf, where they, as God is wedding himself to Israel with the, the, the Ten Commandments, the wedding vows, and they're becoming the people of God. They're literally even lifting on the, him. the veil. Yes, yes. The veil of the Moses because of the glowing face. Absolutely. Though the marital imagery here is huge. Yeah. And as they're actually entering into this, as they've witnessed their freedom from Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea. They've been fed bread from heaven in the manna. They fall to this profound sin, which is literally like cheating on your spouse on the wedding night. That's the analogy that I think is best here. It's it's bringing someone else into your room on wedding night. That's what they're doing. And in the context of that, it's there that God reveals himself for the first time as steadfast in his love and faithful. My steadfast love, my emet and my chesed actually show up there for the first time, which is um, beautiful because it shows up in the context of chastisement. 
Mm. And it reminds it reminded me because you said it earlier with the part that's actually lifted from the first reading about you know the striking with the uh, the, the rod and stuff stripes but and rod. God in our weakest, darkest, most sinful moment is when He reveals Himself as His most faithful and His love as the most steadfast. And I think it's significant that that's the context of this. And so it's not surprising that Psalm 89 continually returns to these attributes of God, which are revealed out of Israel's greatest act of apostasy. That's actually the, the mechanism that, that uh, brings them out. So all of Psalm 89 really is a reflection or a meditation on the glory of God in the Davidic, king, in the Davidic kingdom, as well as a premonition of the collapse of the Davidic kingdom. Because it's under Solomon's son that the kingdom will fall, and it will become divided in a civil war, which will lead into great darkness and eventually the obliteration altogether by the Babylonians. And so it's calling Israel to remember God's goodness from the beginning of creation through the Exodus, through the kingdom given to David, which is about to be lost, that God is still steadfast in his love and he is faithful. And the last, oh, go for well, it. Well, what I love then is what is the, so verse four, I will establish your descendants forever and mm-hmm. build your throne for all generations. The, that at the core, that what is the excitement of, I mean, like the, the marital life actually is specifically disposed towards descendants. So it's saying yeah. like, like it's the good of spouses, the good of children and the good of education of children. I mean, that's like, those are the three goods of marriage. So if yeah. if that's the case, then that's actually a spiritual reality that the throne and the kingdom are about making descendants. Absolutely, which is what a house, a household, which is what God is making David into, and that's why household actually works quite well, I think, in this. Right. Uh, Beth. I don't know what the Hebrew would be for household, but Beth is still house. Right. And and that's why he's so when when it's like when things go bad, he says, I'm still committed. Yes. I'm still committed. Right. I'm still in. And then what you get, and this is actually a very long psalm, and we get just, you know, a tiny taste of it. Um, but the other thing I just wanted to mention by way of theology here is that because of exactly what you're saying, God is saying, Look, things are hard, but I'm committed. I'm in. Whether you guys actually feel like you're in or not. I'm in. But what uh, what um, Psalm 89 actually does, and this is what the whole of Book 3 in the Psalter does. So, Psalm 89 is the capstone to it. Dude, by the way, Psalm 89 is really long. It's I just said that. <laughs> It's really long. <laughs> did, did you just say that? Yes, I literally just said <laughs> I just was, I'm sorry. But what I want to say about it, and I, I just, again, it, I, it's timely, but it's perennially significant. What um, Book 3, but Psalm 89 in a particular way does it contains the efforts of the people of Israel of grappling both privately and corporately as a people and individually as to the question with why does evil persist? Mm. Why does it just keep coming? Mm. And uh, that's you know, not pertinent in our day. It's not all. pertinent in our day at all. Um, but you know, why do, why do the bad seem to get away with it? Why do we live as your chosen people? We do everything we can to hold this life together with you, God, but yet everything is constantly falling apart mm. and it feels like it's constantly being stripped away from us. And so, the reason I bring this up, though, is because of what it, the way that it answers the question. And uh, I think the Holy Spirit put these verses here to show us, if nothing else, that God can handle our grief. God can handle our frustration. God can handle our anger. Because I think the more common human reaction, at least in Christianity, because this is the experience, is either to face these things and this darkness and this grief and all the stuff and to simply walk away. And to say, I'm done, I'm out, I'm through with this. Or maybe even worse, to play the church game, to 
kind of just show up, go through the motions, play the game, which is so far from the Jewish experience of this, which um, the Jewish experience is to um, be honest and be frank and let God have it and say, what's the deal? There is a, there's a, the challenge in the Bible and the Psalms of taking God to task of saying, what is, what is happening? I don't get it because at the end of the day, as Psalm, as Psalm 89, but the, all of book three says in a pretty profound way is God can handle it. He can take it. And I just, the last thing I want to say is actually a very small passage from the catechism that speaks about something called paresia. You remember that word? It's not parousia. It's not the second coming. Paresia. So P-A-R-R-H-E-S-E-A. It doesn't is, have to do something with walking? Well, sort of. It actually comes from walking. but Perry, because it's around. Walking strong. It, filial boldness is filial actually what it means. boldness. Oh. So walking with strength. So a boldness toward God with mm. the reality of our life. And I just want to say what the catechism says. Ooh. It's in uh, 2778. It says, this power of the Spirit who introduces us to the Lord's Prayer. That's the, where it's contained in the catechism. Um da, 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 da. It's talking about the Lord's Prayer and how it's expressed in the liturgy beautifully. It characteristically... Uh, it expresses the characteristically Christian expression, paresia, straightforward simplicity, filial trust, joyous reassurance, humble boldness, and the certainty of being loved. That we can approach God's throne in anger sometimes, in grief, in heartache, in ticked off itness, whatever, because we actually have the certainty of being loved, because we have the certainty of God's chesed and his uh, emet that he is faithful and he is steadfast in his love. So I can actually let my emotions out. I can be ticked off and I can say, I hate this. I'm mad at this. This is miserable because he can take it, which is not, just doesn't tend to be what Christians like to do. Not nope. to put a, you know, overarching too sim oversimplification, but it is what the Psalms teach. Mm. And so I actually was struck by that this morning as I was studying over these things and I was pretty moved by that passage. So, which is good and leads us into Romans. It does lead us into Romans, the very, very end of Romans. Yeah. Now to God who is able to strengthen you. Mm. Right? Yeah, right. Right. That that para. Parasia. Parasia. Parasia, not parousia. So it's like so it's like if you had two Sia albums with you, it's a Parasia <laughs> albums. Maybe it's Parasia. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> I mean, it could be Parasia. I don't know, man. It, or I need to get my. I was thinking about <laughs> dyeing my hair like Sia, just because nice. like, like Sia. <laughs> Isn't Sia the one who never shows her face? Yeah, and no. you, you know, like it's the countenance, you know, it's like, but then she decided to show her face. But then, oh. so it's Parisia. So it's strengthening okay. you according to the gospel and proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, mm -hmm. but is now disclosed. Yeah. That's, that's like, dude, that's it. It's yeah. like we, we are in the end times now. It has now been disclosed. Right. Like we are the, the full deposit of faith is here. It's funny you use the word end times, which is the proper definition. But when we think of end, sometimes we think like if I'm standing in line at Safeway and there's nobody behind me, I'm at the end. But that's not what the Jewish concept of the end time or the Christian concept of end times means. It means the climax. Like this is it. Oh, we're in the end times. We think of like Bruce Willis and asteroids hitting the earth. And, you know what I mean? At least I do. <laughs> Bruce always makes his way into my apocalyptic thoughts. My my uh, my vicar came to me and he's like, "Do you know that a few days ago an asteroid almost hit the earth and killed everything?" I was. Uh... 
Did oh, I say cool. that already? Uh, you told me. It I was, told it you was like uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and I was like, oh no. Oh, I, was, I was like, I was like, well, good thing it. But missed. we're good now. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. glad thing I didn't know about that one. Yeah, that's handy. But yeah, no, it's it does. It's but the, this the is end the climax of, of history. This is when God has begun to lift the veil. I'm like, oh, this is it. Right. Not this is the end. This is the beginning. This is now God is revealing, and we can live in His revelation. To live as descendants. Yes, yes. To live in the household. Right. The household yes. has been established. Now let's fill it. Like the the meal is yeah, said. It's all has been prepared. So now go out and invite those who have been meant to come to this household yeah. and to, to covenant. To join together, and then there, the first people are like, "I don't think so." So now, <laughs> yeah. good thing I was hiding in the hedge, and then the Lord called me in the sycamore tree. <laughs> Where, who did he call out of a hedge? The hedgerows and byways. He called all oh, the people. Oh yeah, you're yeah, okay. Right, you know, it's I like forgot. a hedgerow. We just don't have hedgerow. <laughs> hey, please join me over to the hedgerow. <laughs> the hedgerow. Oh man, we had these. I don't know if they were full on hedges, but we had these juniper bushes in my house growing up. And those things, man, juniper bushes, they get away from you. And oh. I remember when we had to take them all out. Oh. It was just like junipers, hedges, hedges upon hedges of junipers. Mm. It's like sin in the life. Just yeah. get it out. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Not to <laughs> get into hedges. Uh, which brings us to Luke, I okay. think, right? I don't, I don't have that much more to add. That was a, a I mean, perfect way to summarize yeah. the book of Rome, or the, the Paul's message to Romans. Yeah, that's, that's a, I, I don't think this has ever actually happened. What we're, I literally think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be efficient with my words. That, that is beautiful. I feel, I, I feel, I feel very thorough. But I don't even did. know. I mean, you said it. That's, that's, there's nothing to say, nothing more to add. Right. Awesome. So Luke. Okay. <laughs> Now, Luke. Now then, now there's a couple of things there's to lots. say. There's something that's been bubble, bubbling in my soul about um, this uh, that I we'll see to what degree we want to get into. But um, actually, now that we've mentioned the idea of household and family, maybe it's maybe it's applicable. But um, yeah, just a couple of things about this. So this is. Uh, this is the second Annunciation that Gabriel has made so far. So obviously this is the capital A Annunciation, the mystery of the rosary. But by this point in Luke, Gabriel has already appeared to somebody. Do you remember who? Uh, oh, yeah. He appeared to Micah. No. Um, he appeared to Z- Zerubbabel. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Did, didn't. <laughs> okay. Okay. Talk to me so I don't feel so dumb. No, you're not. Gabriel, dumb. Gabriel came to the announce spot. the 70 weeks of years to anticipate. You're thinking way, way back. I just mean in the Gospel of Luke so far. <laughs> so far in Luke. Yeah, yeah. Who is the who do you write? So Zachariah. So remember the first scene of the Gospel of Luke is No, Zachari- no. The, the oh, other guy. Daniel. The, Daniel. Daniel. That's who yeah, I was yeah, looking I, for. I, yeah. This, I, play, I played Bible trivia with a bunch of friends the other night with the, like, like from two years old up through adults and, and then a bunch of teenagers. Did the two-year-old smoke you? No, everybody <laughs> smoked. Everybody got easy Aww. questions except for me. But then it was like, who who did the angel Gabriel announce to in the Old Testament that the Savior would come? And I I did not get that one because I would have gotten it wrong. I'd have been like, Zerubbabel? <laughs> <laughs> This is my problem in life is that I choose very obscure things and latch onto them and will never forget them. Well, you're not wrong. 
You're not wrong, and that's why I mean Zachariah is Gabriel explains his significance by pulling on Daniel. Daniel, and then okay, so but we're back in Luke. (coughs) Zechariah. So Zechariah. So the the first thing I just want to point out. So the first time Gabriel shows up in the gospel is to Zechariah, who is John the Baptist's father, of course, right? So him and Elizabeth. So Zechariah was in the temple. He was offering the incense. He was doing this really important job, offering the prayer of Israel. Uh, Gabriel shows up and he's like, hey. Your prayer is heard. Israel is going to be saved. Like, now's the moment. Oh, and you're going to have a son on top of it, even though you're really old and all the stuff. He gets this monumental message as a priest at the off, as the hour of the evening sacrifice, representing the entire nation who's standing outside of the temple, this huge deal. And the thing that's significant is that he gets the secondary announcement. The big announcement shows up to the what, 13, 14-year-old peasant girl in Nowheresville, Nazareth, backwoods town not seemingly significant so i love that luke gives you two annunciation scenes one is the one you expect to be the big messianic announcement but it's the secondary one and then to the person you expect to be the secondary downtrodden nobody of the story she gets the big one and so luke has already set you up basically to upend our expectations of what all these things are supposed to look like so Mary's scene, even the Annunciation itself, is meant to upend our expectations of how this is all going to come to be. And so you get this. Uh, does that make sense? Yes. It's cool. It's cool. It's it's just a, surprise. So, yes. Surpri- <laughs> oh, you brought it back. <clears throat> Sorry. Got a little too excited about that. Yes. Surprise. You, you, had, uh, oh, yes. you, you thrashed your voice the other day teaching a class, yeah, man. I That's did. Like, I that, did. That I was got, excited. Yeah. And it was a Zoom class, <laughs> which, you know. I don't know if they can hear me all all the way out there in Zoom land. So <laughs> yeah, I have to yell. <laughs> You're trying to project. I'm trying to. I got to get to Florida. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so the, the Gabriel appears to this woman. What? 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 Two. Th- I only want to say two things. Hit me. Okay, and I'm sure you have stuff bubbling as well. Um, Gabriel appears to Mary. No, a, a nobody of her time. I think it's safe to say, right? I don't want to over or overly underemphasize Mary, but. She would not have been seen as a significant member of her society. No. It's just true. Gabriel appears to her in a place called Nazareth, not a significant town. She was young. And he says, first of all, I mean, it's significant that we point out the, the greeting. This is a greeting that has never been used before in all of human history. Because it's a term that grammatically isn't supposed to even make sense because of the, the, the grammar that the angel uses, or at least that Luke uses when he translates it into Greek for us. Um, He uses the past perfect participle, which simply means, hail you who have been totally and completely filled with God's grace. Perpetually into the future. Right. In in completion, in perpetuity. Right. That that verb tense doesn't get used elsewhere. But this is partially where the church begins to say, oh, maybe there's something significant about Mary's spiritual moral life. Right. This is the sinlessness. There's no room for sin if you're filled up that much with grace. Absolutely. Um, But then he said, the Lord is with you. And what we know about the the story of salvation history is that whenever you see the words, the Lord is with you, it means that something bad is going to happen or God is going to ask you to do something that's going to stink, right? Specifically with JL. You're jump. Does she get that? Yeah. Does it say the Lord is with you? Uh huh. She has the blessed among women thing, but I, doesn't she get the Lord is with you? Maybe it, it could be. That I, could very well be. Okay. I'm thinking of Moses when he has to go back to Egypt and set Israel free. Okay. God's like, don't worry, the Lord will be with you. And <laughs> Jeremiah, when he has to pronounce a curse on the temple and they're going to try to throw him off a cliff, God's like, it's cool, I will be with you. <laughs> like Every time somebody has to do something monumentally hard, God says, the Lord is with you. 
Oh. And so if she knows her salvation history, which I assure you he, she does, yeah. Mary hears the words, the Lord is with you. And I guarantee the only proper response for someone who understands salvation history is to say, Rut row. Rut row. <laughs> right? I love that you go to Scooby, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I should know. That, no, that was beautiful. <laughs> it's like yeah, it, it's gonna inspire um it's gonna inspire certain feelings inside of a person. It ought to. Right. Because then it says she was greatly troubled at this. At what? At the, hearing reading. the Lord is with you. <laughs> yeah, she knows like, that this is a big deal. Yeah. And then the angel says, Do not be afraid, Mary, you've found favor with God. And he says you are, you're going to conceive in your womb and bear a son. Then it describes Jesus, but in describing Jesus, the conceive angel- in her room, womb, womb, womb. Don't oh, get, womb. get out of Scooby, Scooby Zone. Scooby Zone. Um, but he quotes Second Samuel seven, as if to say, "Oh, that promise made to David about the house, about the the Beth that was to come." Yeah, it's being fulfilled in you. You are the ultimate fulfillment. There was approximate fulfillment, of course, like you said, in Solomon. Right. But you are ultimately going to hold the fulfillment of this Beth. Where is he born? Bethlehem, the house of God of bread, which we don't get here. But there's all these pieces begin to coalesce, and you're like, holy cow. Um, what do you think? I'm, I'm hesitating about saying one last thing, but I, uh, I want to get your thoughts so far. I mean, this is the, this is the, it's so radical. I mean, I think about the angel Gabriel and the kind of massive work to be able to come and to say, because we see Elizabeth, so Zechariah and Elizabeth are very important. And the reason why I wanted to bring up the the, the context of um, Daniel. Of um yeah the of uh, Obi Wan Kenobi in the hill country oh 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 my gosh I forgot about that. yeah yes, o- yes, yeah yes. Obi Wan in the hill country is yeah, that yeah. is that the Ark stayed yes. at the in the hill country for three months three months before it goes and and returns to the city of God and so so what we see here is like Mary what is what is already given this sense uh, so Elizabeth mm-hmm. in her old age has conceived a son and this is the six months so she's gonna go spend three months in the Elizabeth. hill country at, at Zechariah's house. Holding what? Her own, the son of God. The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Which has, and you pointed this out, and I wasn't even thinking about it when you said it, she holds inside of her what? The bread come down from heaven, the manna, mm-hmm. or like the manna. Uh, the priesthood, the new high priesthood, which in the Old Testament was represented by Aaron's staff. Right. And the new law, who right. is Jesus, which represented in the Old Testament by the stone tablets. Right. That's literally what's inside of her, as then she goes and dwells in the hill country of Judea for three months. Hold on. What was Zechariah supposed to offer in the temple? Incense. The presence of God was smoke. Oh, oh. So, because I was asking, I, I was oh, gonna, I was gonna make a joke about like smoking because <laughs> the presence of God was there. <laughs> and so, and then, and then, and then I was like, "Thank goodness I was, that you didn't." <laughs> thank goodness I didn't make that joke. But then I was like, "Well, I'm looking for the presence of this smoke, the presence of God, the the light of God, and that that in fact, in it, like." That was actually the moment to say the smoke now was pulled like, like, oh, he offered it in the temple and now it actually has to go back to the hill country to then accompany. I don't know. I was, it's a, it's a kind of a stretch. Well, well, no, take it a different, take it a different way. Yeah. Um, when he's offering the incense, so properly speaking, the incense represents the prayers of the people rising up before God in terms of smoke. Right. But here's what's interesting about what you say in the time of Jesus, 
the Ark of the Covenant was empty, or the tabernacle, rather, was empty. Right. The presence of God isn't there. The Shekinah, the, the smoke, right. is not present. Right. Because it left. It went away before the exile, and it never returned. And so they're praying for the day that God comes back to the temple. So Zechariah offers the incense in the form of smoke, does his thing, goes back home, and who shows up? Mary, the, the presence smoke, of God. The Shekinah, the glory the Shekinah. cloud comes to him. Right. Oh, yeah, it's, so it's you're actually... right, you had it. Right. It, but it, in the, like a, this inverted way. Almost. In this kind of beautiful, symbolic Surprising, way. unexpected way. Mm, right? In this surprising way that, that even the offering of the incense, the kingdom, the son of God, all of yes. these liturgical moments are yeah. all these preparations yeah. for this inversion of the, right? this commitment, and that's why it's so funny when you were at the base of of um, of Sinai, yeah. that God emphasizes His loving mercy at this most unexpected, surprising moment to create. And so right. now, now right. I mean, that's what we're anticipating is this house, like the, the, this house, this kingdom, that is so different than what we could have ever understood or expected, but were prepared for so that the Lord could surprise and delight and did say a new thing has been done. So in Exodus, God reveals his chesed and emet, his steadfast love and his faithfulness in a moment of shame. Right. right? That's what the golden calf is. What, um, what I've been reflecting on, and I'll say it quick, what I've been reflecting on a lot is, is we talk about Mary's fiat, as Catholics a lot, her yes, and this is what makes Mary so profoundly holy, is that she says yes to God under these circumstances. But, you know, for so many of us and for me for so long, I've thought about her yes being so amazing and profound because, you know, she's going to have this child. Everybody knows that the marriage has not been consummated yet. Everyone knows that she hasn't come together with Joseph. So everyone's going to know that either they've cheated or she's been unfaithful or something bad is going to happen. So we have this sense, or at least I've always sort of carried the sense of like, oh man, she's saying yes to it, like embarrassment and raised eyebrows and this like, you know, she's going to be kind of ostracized from her friends and she's going to be looked at weird. No, that's not what she's saying yes to, because what we know is what happens when a woman is unfaithful or has sex before marriage or what she's going to be suspected of right. is that she will be, again, not to be, um, not to be overly blunt, but she will be buried up to her torso in freezing cold earth packed with clay, immobilized with her hands in the in the dirt, and from youngest to oldest, the members of the village will come out and chuck rocks at her head from larger or from smaller to larger until her body bakes in the sun, her skull is fractured, and she burns there in the heat. And I'm not trying to be gruesome, but I want to emphasize what this 13 a girl who's literally a year probably or so older than my daughter says if I say yes to God, this is what's going to happen because I know how it works and I know what the law is and I've seen this take place before. And if I say yes, this is what's waiting for me. Mm. So I'm going to say yes because although I have no earthly clue how it could be, I know that God is chesed and emet. And if he has asked me to do this, he's got a way out. And I don't know what that is. So I'm going to take all of this on and accept what? The shame that will come from this. I think that's in part, I think she wants to help, but I think that's in part why she flees to Elizabeth and Zechariah for three months because she's got to get out of there because of what's going to happen. Joseph is terrified of this too, but then he steps in and he becomes the protector 
so that she doesn't have to face this. But I guess what I'm getting at, and the, the my fine point to put on it, is that I was sort of I think that is the reality. And I think a lot of this has to do with why they can't find a place to stay in Bethlehem when the heir to the throne of David, who is known by his whole family, can't even find a couch to sleep on with his nine-month pregnant wife, except someone his garage or equivalent of. There's tremendous shame that surrounds the birth of our Lord, which isn't doesn't make for cute nativity scenes of the shame and the sneering. And can you imagine what her neighbors said about Mary and to Mary under their breath when they passed her on the street? What slanders they gave her? And I, I, I can't imagine that as soon as Jesus was born, they all moved back to Nazareth and everything's happily ever after in this bucolic white picket fence life. I bet they carried the stigma of what people thought must have happened for the rest of their lives. Well, and I mean, I think about that too, even with Zechariah and Elizabeth, because yes. what <clears> happened <throat> is that like, they're, like everybody's looking to Zechariah and saying, hey, what's the name of this guy going to be? Yeah. And, then, and then he looks over <laughs> to, to Elizabeth, and this is so radical that she would choose a name that's not of what they're doing. And he was shamed in the temple because something happened that, yes. that he wasn't able to pronounce the name of God over the people. Yeah. And he wasn't able to actually fulfill his duties because of some crazy thing. And now he turns to his wife and says, what's the name going to be? And then she says, John. And he says, yep. Yep. That's it. And and like, there's all these like things that are inverted in a way that you're like, it's merciful and unexpected and so intense and socially ostracizing that, that you go, Okay, you, you know, Jesus, it, though we kind of can look and we can say, well, this is kind of flipped on its head. We live in a moment now, again, where Christianity feels a little bit like that, yeah, where it it's does. like, you know, we're going to, it's going to, to claim that yeah. God became man and a little baby isn't, it, it's, the reason why people are rejecting saying Merry Christmas or even Happy Holidays, I mean, like, is because of, this has always been the way. Yeah, and the natural state of the church's persecution, the natural state of the house of the Lord, is that it's going to surprise you. It's it's messing with the order of how things people think things should be. This is the household. Right. So imagine that. This has been my reflection. Yep. Jesus will grow up to begin his ministry. And as we've talked at nauseum on this podcast, <laughs> his ministry is defined and marked by rejection. Right. Right. People listen to him for a little bit, and then they reject him, and he is shamed, and they're embarrassed, and how could you say that? What's wrong with you? We don't want anything to do with you. So Jesus' ministry, up until the crucifixion, is marked by rejection. And I had this little kind of passing reflective thought on, huh, what if Jesus watched and experienced and was raised by a couple of parents who knew well what to do with rejection? And what to do with the shame that society feels for them because they are following the will of God. And that when Jesus, in his full humanity, although he be divine as well, perfectly in 100%, he also had the experience of parents who lived with societal rejection, with the shame of what people thought about them despite their knowing the will of God in their lives and the truth. So that when Jesus grows up and is rejected and put to shame— He's like, it's cool, I can take this, because I had Mary and Joseph as my model. And they lived this, and they bore it, and they walked with it, and they held it in their heart, and they taught me how to be rejected and how to follow God anyway. And it was this beautiful thought that I had. Of like, That's beautiful. Oh, man, isn't that what God does? Mm. This is the household. This is the bet that Jesus is born into. And this yeah. is the fulfillment of all of it, which, I don't know, I've been thinking about that, and I thought yeah. it was beautiful. Yeah, you bet.
Oh, <laughs> that's good. Oh, uh, friends. Well, God bless you. Um, we look forward to being able to celebrate the <clears throat> mysteries of the incarnation of Jesus. And I just am so thankful that you guys have joined us. And uh, we love you. And we wish you a very, very... Um, Though strange holiday, <laughs> yes. a uh, a very holy one. And I want to thank in a very special way those who participated in the oh, yeah. uh, live podcast and for Giving Tuesday. Absolutely. We ended up um, with uh, $7,600 of Praise gifts. Be to God. And it is massively helpful to us. I cannot express my thanks to you enough. And the notes that you guys sent and the, the generosity that you poured out uh, so that we can con- continue to do this amazing work, like literally... It was. Uh, it's a profound gift and a commitment to uh, Jesus' work in the world. So God bless you, and um, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. We'll see you soon. Bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash AICT, and you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.